The scripture reading this morning comes from Romans 8, verses 28, 29, and 30. And we know that for all those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he may might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those who he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Well, it's good to see you this morning. Let's go ahead and pray one more time before we jump into God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful and thankful to again be gathered as your people and to be in front of your Word. There are men and women who have died for this Word. They have lost their very lives for it. And we have this incredible privilege week in and week out in this land to, with freedom, to come together and to explore Scripture and learn it together. And we pray that you would give us assistance this morning and help from your Spirit uh, to understand the passage that's in front of us. Thank you for your kindness. Now, Lord, come and bless us, and may this time be useful for every person who is gathered here this morning for the sake of their good, the good of their soul and for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Over uh, over a hundred years ago, uh, J.C. Ryle wrote a book, and it was simply entitled Holiness. Some of you may have read that book. Um, if you haven't, I commend it to you. And uh, it's a must-read book, it really is, and in it he writes the following. Holiness is a subject which is especially seasonable in the present day. Strange doctrines have risen as of late concerning the whole subject of sanctification, Some appear to confuse it with justification. Others fritter it away to nothing under the pretense of zeal for free grace. Others practically neglect it altogether. Some are so much afraid of works being a part of justification that they can hardly find any place at all for works in their Christianity. But in a day like this, a calm examination of the subject as a great leading doctrine of the gospel may be of great use. To many souls. Now, you probably already know what I'm about to say, but those words that J.C. Ryle wrote over 100 years ago are strikingly relevant for us today. As he was writing this paragraph, I was reading it thinking, man, this is unbelievably timely in our society, and especially in evangelicalism. And so my goal this morning is to help us understand what sanctification is and why it matters. It's very simple. Because if you're just joining us, we've been spending, um, we've already spent four messages in this series that we're calling Saved. And we're walking through these words in Romans 8, 29 and 30 that are listed here. And the idea behind this series is to understand how it is that we got saved. I mean, most of us in here realize I'm a Christian you know, you would, you, would, you would feel assured of your conversion. You would feel, you know, I, that you are trusting in Jesus Christ. But the question is, are we always clear in our understanding of how that happened? How did that come about? And Romans 8, 29 and 30 are very helpful in that. So we want to look at the Bible and we want to gain a clear understanding of what God did to draw us to himself. See, Romans 8, 29 and 30, they show us something of God's ways. And we get this spectacular glimpse um, into the sovereign and saving work of God from eternity past to eternity future, all that God is doing. And we see this glorious work of God. And then in verse 29, we have this powerful content. This is not just incidental information. This is not just kind of neat facts. These are powerful words that are describing who God is and how God acts and how he loves and keeps and sustains and blesses his people. These are powerful words in Romans eight twenty nine. We've already looked at these words, uh, foreknown, predestined, called, justified, 
And now today we consider this great word sanctified. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you this morning some theological help, okay, regarding sanctification. And then I want to give you some practical help regarding sanctification. So we're going to look at those two things. And both are necessary because right living flows out of right thinking. If our thinking is messed up about sanctification, then guess what? That's going to have an adverse effect on how we live our lives. So we must understand correctly. And then out of that correct understanding, we will live appropriately in this life. So let's start with some theological help this morning regarding sanctification. Now, I'm doing this. This is important stuff. And this is a very misunderstood word. And when it's misunderstood, as I said, it has serious consequences. Certainly, sanctification is a very, in our culture, we we could say it's a very irrelevant word. I mean, nobody's talking about sanctification, certainly if you're not a Christian. And even in Christian circles, it's amazing how little theology people have and understand. It's sad. It's sad. And it's our job as pastors to be teaching our people theology, teaching God's sheep theology. And this word is misunderstood in our culture. It's irrelevant. In fact, our spiritual health And that's sad because our spiritual health hangs, in some senses, on our understanding of this word. In fact, your salvation can hang on your understanding and application of this word. Now, you may be asking, okay, I'm looking here at the verses, look down at 29 and 30, and I'm staring at these verses, and I'm not seeing the word sanctified. So, where are you getting that? Because I see foreknown, I see predestined, called, justified, but glorified, but I don't see sanctified. And that's a good question. It's not there. The word's not there. And the question is, why is it not mentioned in this chain of salvation? Because Paul mentions these other words. Why didn't he just say, think about it, and those whom he justified, he sanctified, and those whom he sanctified, he also glorified. Why didn't he say that? That'd be a perfect place, seemingly, to put that word sanctified. Well, in one sense, I, I mean, I can't answer that question. I don't know why Paul didn't use the word sanctified there. But what is clear is the fact that Paul certainly makes reference to sanctification in verse 29 when he says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, here it is, to be conformed to the image of his son. That's sanctification. There it is right there. It's the process of becoming more like Jesus. I like how one pastor friend of mine defines sanctification. He said, sanctification is closing the gap between what you believe and how you live. So when we talk about sanctification, we're really talking about holiness. And when the Bible talks about holiness, it has three basic emphases. In the Old Testament, the word holy, the word kadosh, it basically means three things. It means separation. It means consecration, and it means difference or distinction. Separation, consecration, and distinction. When a person is holy, he is separated from sin. He is then consecrated to God, and he is different or distinct from the world. God is always calling Israel to be distinct from the other peoples. And so there's a distinction issue. That's the basic meaning of holiness. And so when Paul says that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, he's speaking about holiness. And he's not just talking about outward morality, but he's talking about inward purity. And that means if holiness is the goal, then sanctification becomes the process. Is that clear? Holiness is the goal and sanctification is how that happens. So the Bible speaks about sanctification in three dimensions. Talks about it in three ways. First, we've already been saved from the penalty of sin. That's what we call definitive sanctification. We've been saved from the penalty of sin. In another sense, we can say that we're currently being saved from the power of sin. And that's happening right now. And we call that progressive sanctification. And one day we'll be saved ultimately and finally from the presence of sin, praise God, And that we call glorification. So let me just survey those quickly. First, positional sanctification. When the New Testament talks about the child of God, it says that the moment he repents or that person repents and believes, he is what we call positionally sanctified. That is, he is set apart unto God. He is consecrated. He is adopted into God's family and he begins the process of Christian growth. 
Now, just to be clear, all Christians are positionally sanctified. I mean, that happens at conversion. And so all of us are positionally sanctified. We all have the same standing before God. But hear me, we don't all have the same rate of growth. That's a different issue. So let me illustrate this. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians 1. And I want to show you the way Paul speaks. And I think it's helpful to understand this issue of positional sanctification. To be set apart. If I were to ask you this, what is the most messed up church in the New Testament? What would you say? Corinth, right? The church in, in, in Corinth is, is the most messed up church. It's clear. I mean, they got so many problems. I mean, they had legal problems. They had moral problems. They had marital problems. They had erroneous teaching. They, had, they were very immature. Paul tells them so. And notice what he says to them here in verse 2. It says, to the church of God at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified, called to be saints. Now, this is interesting because he calls them saints. And when he says this, he's not just talking about their rate of spiritual growth. He's talking about their position and their legal standing before God. He says that they have, they have been sanctified. These are messed up people, people that is the most problematic church in the New Testament. And Paul says, these guys have been sanctified. They've been set apart. They've been called into my name. They've been adopted. They have been chosen. They've been brought into God's family. They've been consecrated to God. That's what he's saying. So all Christians are sanctified in that sense. We see the same thing in 1 Corinthians 6, uh, in uh, verses 9 through 11, when Paul goes through this list of sins. And then he says, and such were some of you, but you have been sanctified. Okay, that is what we call positional sanctification. We have been set aside, we've been set apart, and we have been consecrated unto God. Okay, now as soon as a man believes he's set apart, he has a new status, a new position, a legal standing before God, a new legal standing of not guilty. And all of you that are Christians this morning have been sanctified. You have been set apart. Hear me. The weakest Christian is sanctified. The youngest Christian has been sanctified. And if you're a Christian and you belong to God, you are no longer your own. You belong to him. You are consecrated to God and he calls you a saint. And that, my friend, is positional sanctification. Okay? Secondly, Progressive sanctification. What's progressive sanctification? Well, then there's this process of growth in the Christian life. So you can use the illustration of a baby. When a baby is born, he's very young. A baby has to be fed. And when you start feeding the baby, the baby starts growing. Eventually, the baby, as he eats, will start to crawl. And then that baby will walk. And then eventually, someday, that same little baby that was so delicate and so needy begins to run. And that's a picture of growth in the Christian life. And we're all at different stages of growth. But if you're a true child of God, if you are born again, if you have been justified, then you will be progressively and increasingly sanctified. But you don't become a man in one day. It's a slow process. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. Turn to 1 Peter 2. Peter says this, he says, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. See, salvation is not the end goal. Salvation is the beginning, and Christians, all Christians, are positionally set apart to God. But all Christians are not at the same stage in spiritual growth. We're at different rates here in terms of our growth. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3. Verse 18, just turn the page. Chapter 3, verse 18. Peter says, we are to grow, notice that language, in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's the goal. The goal is to know Christ. The goal is to become like Christ. And that is a process that takes time and it takes effort and it takes the very power of God. Now, as I said, each of us are somewhere along that process. A man may be physically old, but he may be spiritually very immature. Or think about it. You could have a very young person who is very young, but they're spiritually very mature. And that's possible. And our greatest responsibility and your greatest responsibility is to grow into the likeness 
of Jesus Christ. This is the heart of the Christian life. The heart of your life. What is the essence of your life? It is to know God, to walk with God, to commune with God, to fellowship with God, to get on your knees, to shut your door and to pray to God. It is to see his glory in the person of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 3.18, to see his face and to be transformed from one degree of glory to the other. It is, and as you're instructed by the word and as you have true fellowship with God, you will experience that transformation. Your life will be changed. And this is so important. Church cannot do that for you. Seminary cannot do that for you. Education cannot do that for you. Discipleship classes cannot do that for you. A mentoring relationship cannot ultimately do that for you. A sermon cannot do that for you. Your pastor cannot do that for you. Only God can do this for you. And it's the character of Christ that we're looking for. And that character is shaped and changed as we spend time with God in secret, in communion communion with him, in constant fellowship and interaction with our God. And that happens on our knees. It happens as we diligently and daily seek God's face. That's progressive sanctification. Third, final sanctification. Now, I'm barely even going to touch this because it's really for next week. Pastor Mark is going to deal with glorification. It's the same thing. But let me just round it out by saying that final sanctification is when we will be totally delivered from the presence of sin. And we see this in 1 Thessalonians 5 where Paul says, May the God of peace sanctify you, listen to this word, entirely. May your spirit, soul, and body be preserved complete. So, in su- so that's, what, that's, the, that's what we're saying in summary, okay? We have positional sanctification, the initial being set apart. Then we have progressive sanctification this is a process of growth and then that culminates to final sanctification which is when we are totally free from sin and that's where we're going next week okay so in summary here's what i would say regeneration when god's spirit speaks into the heart of a man and changes his heart when a man is regenerated when he is born again regeneration is delivers us from the power of sin justification When we're declared righteous and not guilty, when we are justified, justification delivers us from the guilt of sin and sanctification delivers us progressively from the influence of sin. So these things are so important and that's what we mean by sanctification. Now, one more point theologically and then I want to get to some practical help. Some of you may wonder, what's the real difference between sanctification and justification? Some of you may not be wondering, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. Let me just say a word about this because this is a pressing issue in our day. Um, Confusion of these categories can lead to some serious error and some really misguided living. Uh, Both sanctification and justification are necessary, hear me, for salvation. You say, what do you mean sanctification is necessary for salvation? Well, Hebrews is quite clear. Hebrews 12, 14, pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. If your life is not a life of holiness, if there is not a, a demonstration of Christ in you, then the author of Hebrews is very clear, just says you're not going to see the Lord. Seek holiness, pursue it, without which no one will see the Lord. So justification and sanctification are both necessary for salvation. But here's the difference. Justification is the root and sanctification is the fruit. Or let me say it this way. Perhaps you're familiar with a statement in our confession that says, Faith alone justifies, but the faith that justifies is never alone. What does that mean? It means that there is... There is obedience that follows that. There's works of righteousness that come after that. So in one sense, we must never separate justification from sanctification. And yet, we must not be afraid to talk about them differently. In fact, we have to. Because justification calls us to rest. Sanctification calls us to fight. Justification reckons us righteous. Sanctification makes us righteous. Justification does not increase or grow, but sanctification increases and and expects growth. Justification is a declaration of God about us. 
Sanctification is a work of God in us. So these are very different things, and it's crucial that we understand that. Now, I I trust that that was helpful for us. For some of you, that's a review. For others, I'm sure you're sitting here the first time saying, man, this is all brand new to me. In fact, I think it's deep. I'm having a hard time tracking with everything that you're saying, okay? If that's you, don't worry. You will understand these things over time. But we must teach these things so that we can grow, even as Paul says, we are to grow up in our salvation. And part of that is just doing clear doctrinal teaching from God's word. Okay, so now what I want to do is for the rest of this message is I want to, to get this, I want to get this word on the street and help you understand why this makes a difference for you in your life. All right, so we're going to move to practical side of sanctification and I want to give you some, some, some helpful things here. And there are two things that we need to understand about the Christian life in personal holiness. First, here it is, you need to work hard. You need to work hard. And second, God's grace must be at work in you. You need to work hard and God's grace must be powerfully at work in you. Or to use Kevin DeYoung's language, he says this, growth in godliness requires spirit-empowered, gospel-driven, faith-fueled effort. But what does that mean exactly? Because here, in this part of the sermon, what I'm going to do is I'm going to lean pretty heavy on Kevin DeYoung and some of his formulations here because I want to help unpack these words. And honestly, I don't know of a better way to communicate this than what Kevin has already done. He's served the church so well in his articulation of some of these things. And so I'm going to lean on him for a couple of minutes here as I unpack this. But let's think about each of these words, spirit-empowered, okay? As we've seen in 1 Peter 1, Peter talks about the sanctification of the spirit. He is the Holy Spirit, right? So if he's the Holy Spirit, it makes sense that he's making us holy, and he's not the only one setting, he's, he's not only setting us apart in a positional sense, but he's working in us to progressively shape us and make us and fashion us into the image of God's Son. He's at work in us, he's at work in our heart, and he's changing us. So let me give you an image that's used in the Bible. When we talk about the Holy Spirit, one of the images that's used for the Holy Spirit is there's several images light. Uh, but one of the predominant images used for the Holy Spirit is this image of power, the Spirit as power. In fact, Ephesians 3.16 says this, says that according to the riches of his glory, he might grant you to be strengthened. Here it is, with power through his Spirit in your inner being. Does anybody need power at work in your inner being? Or do you just wake up some mornings and just say, man, I got this thing. I am so holy. I am so righteous. I have, man, I've got it. I've arrived, man. And your wife's sitting there thinking, yeah, right. (laughs) You have so not arrived. Nobody's thinking that. Nobody's thinking, I mean, there are a few limited people in the world that think they've reached perfection. I mean, there are. There's a whole movement of Wesleyan perfectionists historically in the church that actually believe you could get to a point of perfection. Believe that. Um, I mean, the Bible's pretty clear. First John, those who say they have no sin are liars. So I think that's impossible. But we won't even go down that road. But the issue here is that I wake up in the morning and I'm thinking I need some help in my inner man. <laughs> I get out of bed and I'm, I'm grumpy. I, I don't feel like seeking God's face. I'm not hungry for the Lord. I don't want to spend time in prayer or reading the Bible. And I need some help. I need some power in my inner man. And Paul comes along and says, he's praying that God may strengthen us with power through his spirit in your inner man. So listen, there is supernatural power at work in your life. The same spirit present at creation is at work in your inner man. And he's giving you a heart that wants to resist sin. And he's giving you a will, hear this, that is able to resist sin. And you want to do what is right. And so then we get to Romans 8. And Romans 8 tells us that this same spirit raised Jesus from the dead. Which I would say is pretty powerful. 
The same spirit at work in creation. So do we have problems this morning? Are we sick? Do we feel our spiritual need? Are we struggling this morning? And the good news is this. You have the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead at work in you right now. Isn't that great news? You're not fighting this battle on your own by yourself. You're not trying to be a better person. You're not trying to pull yourself up and just try to make it happen for yourself each day. And so God's power is at work in us. And this power is likened to a mighty rushing wind, a force, a power that sweeps through. And this gets really practical because if you tend to be a defeatist Christian, what do I mean by that? I mean a person who just... You know, you just think, I just can't change. It'll never happen. Our marriage will never change. This thing will never change. I can never change. I try every day. It's useless. I just want to quit. I just want to throw in the towel. Look, I've been at this Christian thing for 10 years. I haven't hardly grown in 10 years. It won't happen. I can't change. If you're a defeatist Christian who thinks that way, then hear me, you are not accurately considering or reckoning with the power available to you through the Holy Spirit. And if you think that way, you dishonor the Holy Spirit. You dishonor God himself. You dishonor the Spirit. You grieve him if you think that you cannot change. Or if you think a situation cannot change. It grieves the Spirit. It's sin. Jerry Bridges says it this way. I love this. Your worst days, your worst days are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. So that's what it means to be spirit empowered. Okay? Gospel driven. Now certainly everyone agrees that our pursuit of holiness must flow from the gospel. But how does that work precisely? I mean, I mean, how do good deeds really flow out of good news? Because that's popular to talk that way in this gospel-centered movement, right? Go deeper in the gospel. You're deeper, the deeper you apprehend or understand the gospel, the more you're going to grow as a Christian. And that sounds great, but the question is, well, what does that mean? I need, I need somebody to connect the dots for me because that sounds great, But what, I mean, practically, what does that mean? You can't just use generality. So it's not not enough to use the phrase gospel-driven. Let me give a biblical example. Here's what it means. Here's how good deeds flow out of good news. Romans 12.1 says, In view of God's mercies, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So what's the motivation for a living sacrifice? Motivation is in view of God's mercies, as you apprehend and understand the gospel, all that God has done for you in Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ, by his power, his grace, his mercy, the gospel, justification at work in you to change you and to make you a new creation. All this stuff, you think about that and that when you assess that and you accurately understand that, it motivates you to say, I want to give up my very life and present my body as a living sacrifice. It's the motive. It's the motivation. And a growing Christian is a person that is growing in both their apprehension and appreciation of the gospel. But secondly, how do good deeds flow out of good news? Secondly, I would say that it drives us to godliness by telling us the truth about who we are. Isn't that what the gospel does? The gospel tells you who you are. It corrects you. It it lets you know that your problems, it shows you who you are. Certain sins... And when this happens, certain sins become more difficult when we understand our position in Christ. If we're dead to sin, Romans 6, 6, that's what it says. If we're dead to sin, why live in it? If we've been raised with Christ, Colossians 3, 1, then why continue in old ways? If we're seated with Christ in heavenly places, Ephesians 2, 6, then why do we live like this is our home? In other words, to understand your identity in Christ is a powerful help toward growth and godliness. So spirit-empowered, gospel-driven, and then third, faith-fueled. Faith plays a role in sanctification, but as I mentioned, it's not the same way it does in justification. So instead of saying, for example, that we're sanctified by faith, it's better and, and safer and more accurate to say 
that the pursuit of holiness is the fight of faith. The struggle for growth is fueled by belief in God's word and God's promises. And when you read the promises of God's word, it fuels godliness. For example, a man who's struggling with lust is reading his Bible. And as he's reading one day, he comes across the Sermon on the Mount. And he comes to Matthew chapter 5. And he reads, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And he walks out the door and he's walking down the street And there's something right there that just makes him, there's a temptation for him to look. And that verse comes back into his mind. And as he considers that verse, he starts thinking, no, the pure in heart will see God. I don't want to see that because I want to see God. I want to see God now. I want to see God today. I want, and especially, I want to see God on the final day. So he doesn't look. He resists. He battles by faith and he says no. And in that sense, sanctification is faith fueled. It comes from faith. You apprehend the promises of God's word. You trust them. You take them into heart. You own them. And you say, I agree with that. And I'm going to follow what is in God's word. That's what sanctification means when we say we're faith fueled. When we're faith fueled, that's what it means. Now, Effort. This is the last word. Keep in mind that everything that we've said so far, okay, it's it's crucial. Because when I talk about effort, I'm not saying that effort in sanctification is on the basis of our own strength. Okay? Just, Just hear that. I'm not saying that. It's by the Spirit's power. I'm not saying that our effort is an attempt to make us right with God. Because that would be a denial of the gospel. I'm not saying that we're justified by faith, but somehow we are sanctified in the flesh. I'm not not saying that. The call to Christian growth is not a call to make people better apart from the spirit or apart from the gospel or apart from faith. I mean, that should be clear to us. But don't miss this. The realities of the spirit, the realities of the gospel and of faith Do not eliminate our need for effort. You can't just quit. You can't just say, well, I got the gospel, faith, and the Holy Spirit, so I'm done in terms of exerting effort. We can't say that. We must work hard. Listen, effort should not be a four-letter word in your Christian vocabulary. And for for some For some in our circles, it is. It's like, I don't want to, you know, I mean, that's legalism. That's moralism. I don't want it. I'm not going to exert any effort. And it becomes like this dirty word. And it's not a dirty word. It's an important word in our Christian vocabulary. It's a good word. Kevin DeYoung says it this way. To grow in grace, we put forth effort. We cooperate with God. We must understand that when it comes to sanctification, we can't simply say to each other, look at the cross. Or be gripped by the gospel. We must also say work. Make an effort. Sanctification is not by surrender. But by divinely enabled toil and effort. We should not be afraid to tell people what the Bible tells them over and over again. Namely to obey commands. And then Kevin concludes by saying this. When it comes to sanctification. Holiness does not happen apart from trusting But trusting does not put an end to trying. That's really helpful. When it comes to sanctification, holiness does not happen apart from trusting. But trusting does not put an end to trying. Those are good words. So let me ask you a question. Do you agree with him? I mean, is he right? Let's take a quiz. Should we be trying to please God or is that legalism? Should we be exhorting one another to work hard and grow in godliness or is that moralism? Is God displeased with us when we sin? Or is he always happy with us because we're justified? What would you say? Listen, the answer to all three of those questions is an emphatic yes. Yes, we should make it our aim to please him. 2 Corinthians 5, 9. We make it our aim to please him. 
Yes, we should exhort one another to growth and godliness. Hebrews 3.13, exhort one another every day while it is called today so you not be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And yes, God can be displeased with us. 2 Samuel 11.27, the thing David did displeased the Lord. And so if we don't answer those questions correctly, we open ourselves up to all kinds of presumption. Holiness requires effort. Yes, spirit-empowered. Yes, gospel-driven. Yes, faith-fueled. But effort nonetheless. And so let me just throw some Bible here underneath all this to make sure you're seeing this from Scripture. Okay? Consider these verses. Ephesians chapter 4 instructs us to put off the old self and to put on the new. That, That requires work, effort. 1 Timothy 4 tells us to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. 1 Timothy 6 urges us to fight the good fight. Luke 13 exhorts us to strive to enter the narrow gate. 1 Corinthians 9 tells us that we are running the race. We're training. We are beating our body into subjection. Philippians 3 talks about pressing on and straining forward. Titus 2 tells us, I love this verse, that the grace of God trains us. That's what the gospel does. It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. 2 Peter 1 tells us to make every effort. Romans 8 tells us to put to death the deeds of the flesh. So I'm seeing some serious effort there. There's not any kind of laying back and kind of staring at the cross and doing a lot of meditating on the cross. It's get up, get out of your seat, and go to war. Go to work. That's the idea here. Sin is serious, and so we must exert effort. As John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Sin, see, sin is like a lion. I was thinking of this analogy. Sin's like a lion that's seeking to devour you. What do you, you don't, what do you do with a lion? You don't try to tame a wild lion. Sin is not to be played with. You don't tame it. You don't try to control it. We don't try to make it behave. We don't try to teach it to do tricks. We don't try to control it. No, we put it to death, which means that while we're growing in our walk with God, we are to be putting things to death. Listen, if it's hurting you, if it's destroying you, it's a lion, drag it out into the streets and put a bullet in it. There's a violent streak to Christianity, and I don't mean violence toward other people. I mean violence towards sin. We've got to exert that kind of effort. If it's killing you, if it's destroying you, get radical about it. Well, that's serious stuff, and so we need help to do that. Now, let me end by giving you some hope and encouragement in this daily battle, because if you're anything like me, I mean, you look at your life, and you feel like you fail so much in this battle. Now, I do. I just feel like, man, I just make so little progress. And I was thinking this week about how there are so many Christians that when they understand this battle, some of them even begin to wonder how they can be a Christian at all. Maybe you're saying this morning, that's exactly what you're thinking. You're saying, I mean, surely, I, I mean, I should not be struggling with this. Can I? I've been, I'm 10 years along my Christianity 15 or 20 years along, really, can I belong to Christ when I'm struggling with this sin? <clears throat> but if, if that's you, then hear me, okay? That the experience of the battle is not a sign of your failure, but it's a sign that you have new life. I mean, are, are you battling? Is there a battle taking place? Is there some kind of war there that you just, you sense that there's a conflict? Then what is, the, what is that evidence of? Why is there a conflict? I mean, if you're sold out to the devil in the world, there's no conflict. You're just enjoying your sin. But if there's a struggle inside and you hate what you're doing and it bothers you and you don't want to be that person and there's a battle at some level and a conflict, that's evidence of life in you. You're not some dead fish floating down the river. You have life in you. You're swimming upstream. And that's why there's a conflict. You're swimming against the tide. You have new life. Take hope. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, though, you know that this battle is intense. And here's the question. If the battle is real, how do we fight it? I mean, practically, how do we fight this battle? So let me, let me close this way. I'm going to give you four strategies for killing sin. Four strategies for killing sin. 
from Scripture. And here's the first. It's pretty obvious, but make sure that you're in Christ. I mean, what use is there trying to kill sin and put it to death unless you're born again? I mean, otherwise you're trying to build a house without a foundation. A Christian is a person who has, that has new life in Christ. Understand this, that killing sin is only possible in Jesus Christ. And that's why Romans 8.13 says, If by the Spirit... So there's a spiritual thing here. Because this means that it's, it is only possible to kill sin when the Spirit of Christ lives within you. You must have power at work in you. You must make sure you're a true child of God. And if you're here this morning, you're not sure. Settle that matter. Come to Christ. Settle that issue. Now, now listen, please understand something. A person who is not a Christian can change their behavior. I mean, they can. People quit using drugs. People stop uh, smoking. People stop sleeping around. People can change their behavior. But there's a big difference between simply stopping a bad behavior and addressing root idolatry underneath your sin and killing it. Huge difference. One can be done by anyone, but only the Christian can do the other. To love and worship Christ more is an entirely different experience than simply quitting a destructive behavior. We're talking about worship here. Alteration. Worship alteration, not behavior modification. Big difference. So that's the first thing. Second, make sure you're in Christ. Second, take personal responsibility. In Colossians 3, Paul says, put to death, here it is, whatever belongs to the sinful nature. And I just want to put the emphasis on the word whatever. Put to death whatever belongs to the sinful nature. And how are we supposed to do that? Who's supposed to do that? Every Christian. And he gives us the Holy Spirit and he enables us to do this, but we cannot fight this battle passively. We must engage in the fight and the battle must be specific. And when you examine the New Testament, you'll see that the language of the New Testament is always active when it refers to the believer's relationship to sin. There's no passivity. It's fight, it's fight, it's fight, it's active. That's the whole point of killing sin. We take responsibility and to do this, we, you need to be really honest about where your battle is. Do you know yourself? Do you know your struggles? Do you know the areas that, that tempt you the most, that challenge you? And are you fighting in those areas? So make sure first that you're in Christ. Second, take personal responsibility. And third, win some battles. And I'm putting the word emphasis here on the word some. Win some battles in your war. I'm not saying win the battle. That's not going to be won until the final day. I'm not saying win some battles perfectly. I'm saying win some battles. And here's how it works. Every time you say yes to a sin, you are increasing its power in your life. Every time that you say yes to a sin and allow its place in your life by indulging it, you are increasing its influence and control. But hear me, every time you say no to a sin, you are weakening its power. And when you cut it back, you are taking the life out of it. You're killing it. And the power of sin has to be weakened little by little. So keep winning small battles and you will strengthen your position. I was thinking of an illustration. Uh, well, let's use the NFL football for an example. Every time you move the ball forward, you're gaining an advantage. Every time you move the ball forward, you're making it easier to score and harder for the other team to score. The game is a game of field position. And likewise, every time you say no to a sin, you're moving the ball down the field. But every time you say yes to a sin, the ball is being moved against you. And you have to be both defensive and offensive. And you have to do this with total focus and with constant prayer and with help from the Spirit of God. So that's the third. Fourth, cultivate virtues that expel the sin that you are seeking to kill. Cultivate virtues that expel the sin you're seeking to kill. What do I mean by that? I mean, I mean, because we're not talking about behavior modification, we're talking about the spiritual realm. So we're, 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 we're talking about the fruit of the spirit. We're talking about that growing more in our lives. And that's why this is significant. When the New Testament gives us a list of virtues, it's telling us, you know, put on humility, put on kindness, put on compassion. Why? Because those things that you're putting on are to be replacing things that you're struggling with. Put off and put on. 
Here's the principle. The more you cultivate the fruit of the Spirit, the less you'll be hampered by sin. So the strategy that comes out of that principle is to identify and to vigorously pursue the qualities that are most contrary to the sin you're trying to kill. Let me give some examples. Self-pity. This thing creeps up in our lives. We start feeling sorry for ourselves. Man, poor me. Look at my life. Look at what's happened. And it creeps in. How do we deal with self-pity? Answer, thanksgiving. Cultivate a spirit of thanksgiving. Every opportunity you can. Think about all that God has done for you. Think about his kindness. Think about his grace. Think about his mercy to you. Cultivate a thankful heart. Or take greed, for example. Greed's another example. How do you root it out? Here's how you root it out. You cultivate contentment and a spirit of generosity. You start giving. You break the power of money in your life by giving to God. And when you do this, you're demonstrating that God is more to you than money. Or take selfishness. How do you root out selfishness? Well, you do that by serving others. Getting out of yourself and getting into other people. So you're, you're putting on what you're trying to put off. You're to replace it and to expel it. Target certain sins, cultivate virtues that expel those sins that you struggle with. Here's the thing. It's amazing how few Christians really stop and think about how to live the Christian life with the power of the Spirit. But this is how we do it. Now, if you haven't spent much time thinking about these things, I've got good news. That means you're on the front end of your growth in the Christian life. Because you haven't even begun to explore these realities. You're thinking about this and you're learning stuff right now. You're thinking, wow, I've got some stuff to apply, some things to move forward in. And the Christian life is an active life. Now, I know of a story of a man who was helping a friend. He was with a serious sin issue. And when he was giving him counsel, this is what he said to him. And I found it very helpful. Here's a guy struggling with mega sin. And his counselor says this to him. He says, you worshiped your way into this and you will worship your way out. That's good. Because victory, ultimate victory for us will be gained in the context of total devotion to Christ. Worship, worship alteration is the issue, not behavior modification. We've got to be better and closer worshipers of Jesus. Give him your heart. Give him your affections. Here's how I want to end. I'm, I'm weary. I'm often weary in my fight against sin. But here's the thing. I'm not finished running my race. And this is not a short run, friends. This is a marathon. And that's why Jesus says the one who endures to the end will be saved. Do you believe that? The one who endures to the end will be saved. But if I'm honest, I have to tell you that I'm tired. I struggle. Sometimes I want to sit down. But God has saved me. Christ has redeemed me. The Spirit has sealed me. And by the grace of God, I'm going to continue. We're going to continue fighting. And that's what Paul said. This one thing I do, I forget what lies behind and I press forward to what lies ahead. Our righteousness, our redemption, our justification is found in a real man in heaven. A real man in heaven. We must not be satisfied with forgiveness merely. Our aim is to know him and to walk with him and to commune with him. Our aim is to fellowship with him, to be like him. Listen, he is a real man and he's in heaven right now. And your aim is to fellowship with him, to know him. This is not just abstract theology. This is not a systematic theology lesson on sanctification. This is life and death. This is a real thing that we're dealing with. There's a real man in heaven. He has a physical body. He walked this earth. And when we get on our knees and when we open up our Bibles before God, when we don't feel it and our hearts are cold, and when we pray to God, we see him. We see him. But with the eyes of faith, we commune with him. We fellowship with him. We see his image, his righteousness, his glory. And that image gets burned on our hearts Listen, sanctification happens through inward transformation. And that type of transformation takes place in secret. That is true spirituality. 
Many people know the truth, but they don't know God. They know theology, but they don't know Christ. They have an education, but they don't live with God. But our highest calling is to know him and to love him and to walk with him and to commune with him and to grow in him. Holiness is the issue. Being a friend, being a friend of God, being a son of God. Listen, God chose you to be holy, not just to save you. And Christ died not just to save you from the guilt of sin, but to save you from the power of sin. And the Spirit indwells you, not just to seal your salvation, but to empower your growth. So we must continue. We must continue. You must fight. Dear Christian, hear me. You've got to get up and fight. We cannot be lazy. We've got to fight. Yes, through spirit-empowered, faith-fueled, gospel-driven effort. But let, let us be a church of fighters in the right sense of that term. Jesus says, He that puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom. But the true child of God will persevere. He has a sword in his hand. Do you remember in the Old Testament where one of David's David's mighty men had a sword in his hand and he fought all day long and he fought and he fought and he fought. And what did it say about him? That sword, when he was done fighting, his hand was stuck to that sword. They had to peel his hand off the sword. And when I get to heaven someday, when I get there, God is going to say to me, Jonathan, you can put that sword down now, son. You can put that sword down. And he's going to unpeel my hand and it's going to drop. But until that day, you grip that sword. You hold on to that sword and you hold it so tight. And you wage and you wield that sword and you fight. And I'm waiting for that day when God pries it out of our hands, all of us. He lays it down. And on that day, listen, we will be freed from sin. And we will worship him forever and ever. So may God give you grace and strength in this fight. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we are not just trying to be better people but that by your spirit, you are equipping us with new power and new help to live this life. Lord, may we not walk out of here defeated, but remember that because you're at work in our life, we have success. We have power at our disposal and we will be successful. So grant us that, Lord, grant us that effort Yes, that gospel-driven, faith-fueled, spirit-empowered effort, but give us that effort and may we grow. And may this year prove that we have grown leaps and bounds and significantly in our walk with you, Lord. May we take this issue seriously. Help us as a church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.